Let's make sure that all of us are sufficiently in the spirit. So we're going to start out this morning with some Easter Bunny riddles. What college did the Easter Bunny graduate from? It's in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. Yes, now you're in it. Okay. What town in New York do bunnies go to for vacation? Albany, New York. I'm sorry, you get what you pay for. This will begin to pick up some rhythm. Now you'll get it. How does a rabbit stay in shape? Don't expect you to have any answers for this one, but you'll get where we're going. He does hair aerobics. Okay. Now you're in. How does a rabbit communicate online? Hair mail. Okay, now you're going to get this one. What branch of the military service do bunnies like best? The Hair Force, exactly. Now, here's the, the crescendo. What are 45 bunnies all marching backwards called? Yes! Yes! That was not a plant. And for those of you in the back, a receding hairline. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. We're going to be a little bit ADD today. I've actually got three messages. There's three sermons today. No, each of them short, so as long as you don't have plans for this afternoon, we'll be fine. Good morning. Here's the giddy-up. Today, we celebrate what is without question the most universally and personally significant event in human history. Second is not even close. It is a fact that literally changes everything. Now, facts can be false. They can be fabricated. And many people don't believe that anything like the events described in the biographies of Jesus actually happened. So today, first, we're going to look at why we believe this story, and I hope that we're going to address our heads with that. And then second, we're going to look at why this event is so universally significant, and with that, I hope we touch our hearts. And then finally, we're going to look at why it is so personally significant for all of us and for everyone else. In the middle of that, we're actually going to insert an audiovisual aid. So welcome today. Those of you who are from a different tradition, I want you to know if you can celebrate God's meal of mercy in your tradition, then you can celebrate it here. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, let's start today by reading a brief passage from the Bible. Now, this passage really is what's going to launch us in the third section of what we talk about today. So after we read it, I want you to hold on to it, file it, and we'll get to it in a few minutes. But this is just an epic verse of Scripture from one of Jesus' best friends, Peter. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, what is for us verse 18. And again, let's go old school. Stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Check this out. Peter said, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So Father, we ask for that remarkable set of circumstances within which you speak to our hearts. Lord, I want to pray especially for anyone here today that does not have a living connection with you. I pray, Lord, that you would speak in a way that we can understand. 
Use my words, Lord, forgive me of my sin. We break open our chests and we make ourselves available to you. Come, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Why do we believe this event actually happened? First of all, let's be honest, there is not an overwhelming mountain of evidence proving that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There's no evidence at all. But that doesn't really prove anything. When we're honest, we all recognize that the two main reasons to doubt this story are reasons we all struggle with. Reason number one, it's not medically possible, given what we currently know about human biology, and that's being generous, by the way. We know enough human biology to know that we will never discover anything that will alter the fact that dead people do not come back from the dead. It just doesn't happen. The second reason to disbelieve it, I've never seen it. I don't know anyone who has seen it. I've never heard from any firsthand witness who was reliable that witnessed a resurrection. Now, that's, that's it. But really, that's an impressive basis for our doubt, honestly. So I think it's important for us to hear our faith respond to those concerns. First of all, concerning the fact that it's not medically possible. Well, it may be obvious, but we should acknowledge that Christianity, pause for dramatic effect, adamantly agrees. The resurrection is not a natural biological event. It's a supernatural event. Its cause and its explanation lie beyond the scope of nature. I'm not saying that would eliminate this doubt. It doesn't always eliminate it fully for me, but at least it should drive us to investigate further. And then we get to the real heart of it, don't we? If we're really honest, the significant part of our doubt is really based on the second concern. I've never seen it or anything like it, and I don't know anyone who has. So truthfully, What's going on here is that we have a hard time believing these 2,000-year-old witnesses because what they saw is so foreign to our experience. Therefore, the only way to deal with this is to examine the testimony of the first witnesses. And we could say a lot, but we won't because you have lunch plans. Now, even the most hardened skeptics have to recognize that there were a host of initial witnesses to this event. So how do we explain that? How does one explain the host of witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus? Well, perhaps they were lying. Alternative number one. It may surprise you to hear that this isn't really a good explanation for the unquestioned facts of the story. I mean, most serious students of this story don't doubt that the first disciples actually believed in the resurrection. Look, something happened that caused them to radically change their lives. They may have been wrong about what they saw and experienced, but there's simply no good way to explain their lives without appealing to sincere belief in the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, most of them lost their lives in this cause. They were killed because of this belief. Surely they would have given up the farce when faced with death if they had known it to be a farce. I'm reminded of the words, I love this quote from Charles Colson. Colson was... President Richard Nixon's lawyer during the Watergate era, and he went to prison for Watergate. Colson said this about the resurrection, quote, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I don't think they were lying. 
but perhaps they were fooled. Perhaps they were deluded. Maybe they didn't actually see or experience what they thought they saw and experienced. What do we say to this suggestion? Well, Paul at one point says, the Apostle Paul says, there were large crowds who saw Jesus after the resurrection. It seems like it would have been difficult to fool a large crowd like this. The the biographies note that all of the disciples saw him sometimes together. Again, if they were fooled, then crowds were all fooled together. Also, we should note that they had very little to gain from believing this story. There was no national inquirer to sell it to. Plus, as I've said, believing it cost many of them their livelihoods and even their lives. Surely they, more than anyone, would have put their experience to the test in, in the face of such difficulty. And if it was a hoax, then we're left with a really tricky question. Who was the source of the delusion? Who was tricking everyone? Peter? One of the other disciples? Jesus himself? It's possible, I guess, but it's hard to imagine any of those as the source of a delusion, of trickery. Okay. Maybe the story was embellished, and it just got exaggerated over time. Maybe it slowly gained steam and became something much bigger than it actually was. This is probably the best alternative explanation. The suggestion would be, I guess, that maybe the biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, maybe they were added to over time. They were embellished, and the story got edited, and it just grew much larger. Possible, but I want you to know... There is no actual documentary evidence for this. It's not like anyone has gone somewhere and discovered a short version of the book of Mark, and it leaves out the wild supernatural stuff, and it just kind of gives some of Jesus' dialogue, and it ends by saying, wasn't he a great man? That doesn't exist. In fact, Paul's letters were written in the early 60s, in which he continually professes the resurrection of Jesus, barely 30 years after Jesus' death. And his preaching would have started much earlier than that. And the earliest biography of Jesus, it was written in the late 60s or early 70s. Therefore, within 30 years, this story is widely known and people are willing to die for it. All of that around an embellishment? Plus, the story is not even older than some of its eyewitnesses. In other words, there would have been people still alive, still around, who could contradict it. This all seems highly unlikely. Plus, we also have to add to this list of evidence the empty tomb. The tomb was acknowledged to be empty by the Jews, by the Romans, and by the first Christians. So who gained from the spread of this story? Certainly not the Jews or the Romans. They were trying to kill this movement. And if they could have proved this story wrong, hey, no, 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 look, look, here's the tomb. It's not, here's the body. It's not empty. Then they certainly would have done so. And the first Christians didn't gain from the spread of this story. Again, faced persecution for following Jesus. Why would they have propagated the idea of an empty tomb? Plus, don't forget this. This would have all been a surprise to the disciples. The resurrection of the Messiah was not a Jewish idea. This is not something they were expecting. There were, in fact, many well-known messianic figures who presented themselves publicly in the centuries before and after Jesus. In every case, we know these from history, in, in every case, their followers fell away and their movements died when they did, but not Jesus. Given all this information, at the very least, I think we have to recognize that a real resurrection is not an unreasonable idea. In fact, 
Maybe the story is true. And wow, if it's true, then this has to be the most significant event in human history. Okay, so why? Why is this event universally significant? Let's imagine that some young boy in Lithuania is able to change his biology and he can fly. This would be a fascinating story on CNN. I suspect it would run through the news networks for days, maybe weeks, but that has nothing to do with me. So 2,000 years ago, an awesome but still random Jewish rabbi supposedly rises from the dead. Why is this so universally significant? And I want to suggest it's because of who he was. So let me just give you a taste of this. To do this, I'm going to give you my favorite Bible story. Literally, my favorite Bible story. This story connected with me in a couple of significant ways many years ago. So Diane and I were younger. We were in our 30s. So that was seven or eight years ago, Diane. And that's not a joke. And I was having my own personal time with God one day, and I was just reading through one of the biographies. I was was reading the book of Mark. And I stumbled into this passage, and I want to read it for you, my favorite Bible passage. All right, before I do, i got to give you some background to this passage, so you'll know this going in. We've talked about this before. That's just to give emphasis to what I'm saying. One of the ideas about God that is prescribed to him by these guys who are dialed into him, perhaps more than any other, is the idea of his holiness. Again, we've said this before at Gateway, but when you look at the biblical concept of holy. You know, we think of holy as, oh, like, you know, holy Sister Mary. And it, it means pure, it does, but that's the secondary definition. The primary definition biblically for the word holy and the concept holy, both Old Testament and New Testament, is the idea of completely different, outside of any other category. So I've used this illustration before at Gateway, but imagine over here is a very, very big category that includes everything. It includes oxygen and this stool and trees outside, and the Milky Way galaxy, and black holes, and Rob's shoes, and spring pollen. Everything is over here. And within this category, there are lots of other categories, but this is a giant category that basically includes everything that we can name in a long list, and we could be here for eternity naming them all. And then over here, in a whole different category, all by himself, God. That's the idea of holy. So what the biblical writers are constantly reminding us of is, look, God is not just a bigger, better version of you. He's something altogether different, and at times, he's to be feared. Okay, so with that as the background, I want you to hear this story. This is awesome. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 4 because that's where I was first reading it, although this account is included both in Matthew's biography and in Luke's biography. But listen to what Mark says. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, look, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. And I've heard many people comment about this passage talking about how it bears the marks of an actual eyewitness account because it gives a time signature in the evening. And it describes the other boats that are around. And it will eventually tell us exactly where Jesus was in the boat a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. 
And this would have been the kind of storm that these guys would have been very familiar with. They were Galilean fishermen. They were constantly out on the sea. They had seen these rogue storms come up, and they had probably, in fact, almost definitely all of them had lost loved ones or neighbors or friends to a storm exactly like this. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Basically, lazy bones, get up, bail some water. We're in trouble. You don't know these storms, but we do. He got up, rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely. It was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Don't you still have faith? And this is the thing that got me. That morning, I'm reading, minding my own business, thinking, wow, this is cool. And then I noticed something I'd never seen before. The next verse, they were terrified. So I know a little bit of the language that the New Testament was originally written in, in Greek. I had to Learned some of that when I was in seminary. And I looked this word up, and I looked the word up earlier when it says that they were afraid, and this word is a stronger word for fear. They were afraid for their lives, and the waves are crashing the storm. Jesus, wake up, bail some water. And he stands up, he says, quiet! And the storm goes completely calm, and now they're more afraid. And here's the kicker. In Matthew's account of this, Matthew remembers the disciples look at one another and they say, what kind of man is this? We don't have a category for this. Look, he's the craziest teacher we've ever heard. But we know we have a category for teacher. We've seen healers before. We've never seen anybody heal like that. But we've never seen this. What is this? What is the category? The truth of this was... Uh, sealed for me. A few months later, I had the opportunity to go. I left Diane and the boys, which at that point we had little kids, so it was a privilege. I mean, sorry, Graham, it was a hassle to have to leave my family. And I went with a, a mission group from South Carolina to Romania. And it was just a couple of years after Ceausescu had fallen and Romania was no longer a communist country and Eastern Europe was opening up and things like mission groups could now go. So I went on this mission trip to Romania, uh, minding my own business, and it's not my group. I got invited from the church I grew up in in South Carolina to go, and it's, it's a pretty large group. We go over to Romania, and we're supposed to do some things in schools, but at one point, this guy comes to us, and he says, hey, there's a, in the next town over, I don't remember the names of any of these towns, but in the next town over, there's a communist hall, and, you know, we've arranged for y'all to go there and perform. None of us have any idea what that means, so, okay. So we had some people who did some music, so we're on our way over there. We get to this communist hall, and this place is big. It's like three, four, five times the size of this auditorium. And it's, it's really, you know, it's a communist structure. It's kind of old and dilapidated and attempting to be impressive, but not really so. And on our way in, the guy who's going to interpret for us grabs us, comes over to us, grabs us. He says, hey... Listen, there's a lot of people here. I have no idea how this happened, but there's a lot of people who says, I think it would be a great opportunity for one of you to talk about your faith. The entire group, there's probably 30 of us, the entire group looks at me. <laughs> and I am completely... 
completely and utterly unprepared. We're walking into this auditorium. We literally come out onto the stage. I peek out from behind. There is standing room only. It's packed. There are hundreds of Romanian people there. And this guy says, whoever speaks, I'll interpret again. The group looks at me, and I think to myself, okay, well, I had a time recently in Mark chapter 4, so I'm going to talk about Mark chapter 4. So I come out onto the stage, wow, but it's kind of like a coffee house, you know, singer-songwriter in a rowdy bar. I mean, there are a lot of people there, and they're moving around, they're speaking to one another. They're not used to church, and we're not really getting anywhere with this crowd, I realize, and I'm a little discouraged, but an odd thing happens. I just feel what I can only describe as just God's sense. So I go up and I start talking about this passage, and I realize I've spoken through a translator before, and usually it is, it's like somebody trying to tweet on crack. I mean, it's really hard to do, and you, you, you say a phrase, and then they try to catch up with you. It's just it's awful. But this guy had actually translated for the UN. He was perfect. He's talking as I talk. So after, you know, like two or three phrases, I just realize I'm, I'm going. I'm going to rock and roll. And as I do, you know, people begin to pay a little attention. And I talk about this idea of holiness. And then I read this passage, and I get to that point, and I say, quiet! And then in Romanian, even louder than I've done, he says, quiet! Deathly still. And I look over at this Romanian translator, and a big cow tear is rolling down his cheek. Y'all, I felt it. I felt the power of holiness squeezed into human skin. I felt just a sliver of what it must have felt like on bad day when the disciples looked at one another and said, what kind of person is this? This is so universally applicable because of who he was. That's why the disciples said, what kind of man is this? That's why Thomas Doubting Thomas, when he sees Jesus after he's resurrected, he gets on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. That's why Jesus, on the last night he was alive, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And he took this meal that had been celebrated for 1,400 years and he reinterpreted it. And he said the bread that is supposed to represent you know, God's provision for you and your safety. That bread is me. And the cup, the cup that delivered you, that literally saved you, that cup is me. So that's what we do now. Stand with me. Okay, if you're from another tradition, thanks so much for being here today. This may be a little different for you. We receive... God's mercy meal in a variety of ways. But today, there are so many of us, we're going to pass it down the rows. So we're going to encourage you to be priests to one another because that's what we believe the Bible teaches. So we do that by one person, take the element, the body of Christ broken for you. I'll give you your words in a minute. And you turn to the person next to you and you say, the body of Christ broken for you. So you become a priest to them as we celebrate holiness squeezed into human skin. Let's prepare. Let's pray. Father, we 
confess to you this morning that we have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We ask that you would have mercy on us and forgive us. And we're so thankful that you promised us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just and you'll forgive us and you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And today we receive that cleansing. We pause for a minute here, Jesus, and contemplate you. We thank you for what you did. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, if you have never personally acknowledged Christ as your Savior, then you got a couple of minutes right now. And it's pretty easy. You can say, wow, something hit me today in a new way. Something has stirred my mind and my heart and my will. And I want to step all in with God. I believe this story in a new way and I receive all that flows out of this story for me. In a moment, we're going to talk about why this is so personally significant. I want you to do that now if you've never done that before. Do it if you're experiencing it now. And for those of us who have done that before, this is a moment for you to say, yeah, I, yeah, it's Easter. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm in. I'm all in. If your children are with you, They're able to participate if you want them to participate. But I encourage people strongly to have made their own personal connection with Christ before they participate in this meal. But parents, that's for you to decide. And teenagers, if you've made this decision to follow Christ, then I encourage you to participate. If you're still lingering around the edges of that and you're not sure about that yet, then don't participate this morning. Let this go past you. We'll be passing this down the rows. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread of the Passover meal and he broke it. And he said, and it probably broke in many pieces. And he said, this is my body broken for you. So when you get this, you'll say, the body of Christ broken for you when you pass it to the person next to you. Let's pass the elements. Okay, choir. As we're passing this, let's sing this together. Beautiful song. For those of you who don't know it, it's really easy to catch on to. To the cross I look. To the cross I look. And to the cross I cling. Of this suffering I do drink. Of this work I do sing. Lord, in my say. Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Body of Christ broken for you, take it and eat. At the same meal, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So you'll turn to the person next to you, priests, and you'll say, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, choir, now you got it. What a priceless gift. What a priceless gift. Undeserved. Undeserved life. Have I been given? Christ crucified. You've called me out of death. You've called me into life. forgiveness of your sins, take it and drink. The body of Christ and the blood of Christ for you. Okay, let's wrap up. Why is this event so personally significant? Let me offer an illustration. U.S. Customs regularly produces a list of items which are strictly prohibited from bringing into the country when we return from another country. So the list of prohibited items. The list includes, check this out, all products made from sea turtles, all ivory, both Asian and African, furs from spotted cats and marine mammals, feathers and feather products from wild birds, most crocodile and caiman leather, most coral, weather and chunks are in jewelry, many meats, fresh fruits and vegetables, plants, seeds, soils and products made from animal or plant material, basically all agricultural products that are suspected of carrying plant pests or animal diseases, and that is certainly not all. Okay, so I want you to think of that for a moment as an analogy for our connection to God. There is a list of products, if you will, products, that cannot be brought into a relationship with God. I don't care how sincere you are or how well-meaning you are. I don't care about your family history or what a good person you try to be. I don't care how many church services you went to or how long you attended Catholic school. The Bible tells us God is perfectly just and perfectly pure. He will not permit impurity of any kind. He cannot tolerate it. He cannot allow it. In proof of this point, the prophet Isaiah offers what may be the scariest observation in the whole Bible. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, Isaiah says this, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins 
have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. And when Isaiah says sin, he really means all those things that we think or do through which we're trying to find our meaning or our purpose or our pleasure apart from God. Look, all of us carry wounds from our past, harsh words that have been imposed on us or unnecessarily cruel actions against us that happened before we were old enough to process them, before we were old enough to filter them. You're, you're worthless. You'll, you'll never amount to anything. No, no one's ever going to love you. Why are you so fat? Why don't you ever do anything right? We take those words and actions, we fold them into our personalities in very unhelpful ways, and then we end up living our lives, at least in part, in response to those words. We end up seeing ourselves in light of those words and actions. And to that long list of uh, actions and words, we add our actions, actions that grow out of our own self-centeredness and lust and and envy and self-protection. And as a consequence of all that, we end up leaving a trail of hurt and damage all around us, in our marriages, toward our children, our sisters and our brothers, our parents, at work, in our friendships. We get hurt and we hurt others. We make bad choices. We stunt our own development and productivity. In short, we're a mess. Now, this is the collection of stuff that Isaiah calls sin. And this stuff, this stuff is barred from entering the country of connection to God. It gets stopped at the border. He will not tolerate it. I know I sound like an old school evangelist here, but I also know it's true. And I could spend a great deal of time proving this to us all through a searching overview of the Bible and and through an overview of each of our experiences and of human history. But we don't have time, and I don't think we need it, because we know this to be true. We know in our gut we're a mess. Deep down inside, we know we are, and and we know that it's not okay with God. We hope that God somehow grades on a curve, but He doesn't. He would be less than God if He did. This is why this day is so important. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is the most personally significant event in human history. This is why the truth that the first followers of Jesus realized and passed on to us is so important. This mind-blowing, bone-shattering truth is found in the first Peter passage we read at the start of the day, and this is what Peter says. For Christ died for sins, not arbitrarily, but purposefully. He died for sins, not just because he was a good guy and he didn't know how to say no. Once for all, all that separates us from God, all of the dissonance that dampens and ultimately destroys our connection with God is taken by Jesus to the cross. He was put to death in the body. He died and all of our mess died with him. But he was made alive by the Spirit. Alleluia, Christ the Lord is risen. And that act now waits on us to respond. It's what the biblical authors called faith or belief. And they didn't just mean this casual notional idea like, oh, I believe it's going to rain tomorrow. My weather app says 40%. This is all in. Alex and I had the privilege of having lunch with someone in our congregation this week, and we were asking about their story and their journey. And I asked the question, hey, when did you go all in? person gave a phenomenal response. They said, you know, I had this experience earlier in my life that was, those of you who were here several weeks ago, you heard Dean talk about a cognitive reset. This was a cognitive reset for me. 
and I kind of got some stuff squared away spiritually, and I got to the point where, you know, I was believing in God and kind of going to church, and then there was all kind of that stuff going on, but check this, I held God at an arm's length, and I suspect that I am talking to some this morning who for months or weeks or years have held God at arm's length. This person said, you know, like about a year ago, I went all in. And what Jesus did for us on the cross, it begs that kind of response. It begs the response of going all in. That's why this is so personally significant, because what he did, he did for you and for me. So if there's anyone this morning who has not ever had the opportunity to say, okay, I'm in. You may have gone to church your whole life. You may have read the Bible before, but if you've never personally said, I'm all in, then that's what he asks of you. In your own heart and in your own will to say, I'm all in. And there, there are those of you who have said, I'm all in, and then later you retreat and you hold God at arm's distance for whatever reason. And there are many legitimate reasons. to Well, there are no legitimate reasons to do so, but there are reasons we think are legitimate to do so. And we would certainly understand those reasons if you gave them to us. But today, today is the day for you to recognize, nope, I'm all in. So I want you to do something for me. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come one more time and close us out here with a contemplation. Again, that's me giving emphasis. Let's pray together. So Lord, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Father, I pray especially this morning for anyone who might be here today who has never gone all in with you. I pray that you've spoken and that we've heard. We welcome you. There's a lot more that needs to be said than I've had time to say this morning. But again, because we all have lunch plans, we've decided to cut all of these sermons short. Thanks so much for coming to celebrate together the most universally and personally significant event in human history. Christ the Lord is risen. And in his rising, let's recognize that all those things that Isaiah called sin, all of that goofiness and mess, Jesus paid all of that. He took all of that on himself, and he killed it on the cross. And then when he rose, what he rose with was our victory and our peace and our connection to one another made possible and our connection to him made free and possible. So let's conclude together by singing, Jesus paid it all. The Savior said, Thy strength indeed is small. Shall the weakness watch and pray? And in me, Thine all in all. Jesus paid it Verse 2, Lord, now indeed I find. Lord, now indeed I find. 
Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have given us that freedom. You've washed us white as snow. And we celebrate your resurrection today. May that celebration echo through this week. May other people around us know there's something different in us because of you. And we pray this uh, in your name. Amen.